You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back. We're here with Richard Maltby Jr. talking about the Longacre Theater. Hi, I'm Richard Maltby, and you're listening to me on Jennifer Tepper's podcast, The Untold Stories of Broadway. So let's talk about kind of what immediately led to Ain't Misbehavin', which was how did you first meet Lynn Meadow? How did that first start? <laughs> well, in fact, the second musical that David and I wrote, um, which, uh, I mean, we, we, we sized up that um, we, we couldn't cast Cyrano in, in, in the undergraduate. You had, to, you had to cast only undergraduate men. There were no women. You could cast women from, from the drama school, the men had to be undergraduates, but we couldn't cast a Cyrano, and we brought in John Cunningham, mm-hmm. went on to a great career, um, uh, to, to play the part. So the next year, we wised up and wrote an original that had two female leads. Mm-hmm. So we could, you know, figure out how to do that. And uh, we put up a casting call, and Gretchen Cryer came in. I mean, if you can imagine sitting in the room and having Gretchen start to sing anything. I mean, it was just magical. We knew we had found somebody extraordinary. It turns out that Nancy Ford was in the show, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both wives of divinity students at the time. Um, but uh, it was about a school teacher who goes to Rome, a kind of a ripoff of, of summertime, of, uh, you know, time of, uh, time of the cuckoo. And um, it started out. There was a there was a classroom um, kind of go sending send off party for this teacher, and there were a bunch of school kids, and one of them was twelve year old Lynn Meadow. Wow. And um, we did a recording. I mean, you could do cast recordings. <laughs> uh, we went into the ballroom of the. Uh, Jewish Community Center, which had sort of reasonable acoustics and recorded the show. Um, and uh, when it came out, you, you could, you could, uh, you could also, RCA would, would do records for you. You could buy jackets and have them printed and everything. They really looked just like records. Um, so, oh, and Lynn Mather, Lynn Meadows' mother played another one of the school teachers, mm-hmm. Jenny Virginia Meadow. So she brought the album to me to sign. So I signed it to Virginia. At the end, I said, and mother of the fabulously talented Lynn. I thought that was cute. You don't say that to a 12-year-old stage-struck girl <laughs> without having some kind of impact. And uh, years later, um, when Lynn had graduated from the Yale Drama School, had come to New York looking for something, and there was this theater that was going under at the Manhattan Theater Club. Um, the idea of uh, Jeff Jeffcoat had a wonderful idea of bringing to America the theater clubs that existed in London. Um, and they had spent a couple of years on it. and. Uh, it was, uh, and 
if anybody wanted to take it over, they could take it over. And Lynn said, I'll take it over. And so at the end of the first year, um, they needed to raise money um, so that Lynn asked me to do a benefit for them, so which we did. And I thought, okay, we'll do a benefit that will honor um, small theaters, shows that have come from small theaters, um, like Three Penny Opera and mm -hmm. Fantastics. Um, and we also did some new songs that people didn't know, and a bunch of songs from that were written by Ed Kleban. Sort of, you know, we did it with our friends. Show the benefit. I don't think raised any money in terms of money, but, but the uh, but the foundations that were supporting it kept their money in for another year, mm -hmm. and that sort of turned it around. And what, what year was that? Oh, Seventy-two, okay. maybe something like mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm just guessing. Um, um, but uh, <clears throat> a, a few years later, I guess we're now in seventy-six. Um, Lynn said, um, why don't you, we should do an evening of Maltby and Shire songs. By this time, David had moved to California where he had this burgeoning career. I mean, the, one of the most sought after film composers. Um, and so many of the songs that we had written were attached to shows that were not successful. <coughs> so they were tainted in our, in mm -hmm. our mind. Um, and David in particular didn't, didn't want to dig up the old bodies and <laughs> send them out to dance. Uh, so, so um, but I listened to them and I thought, oh, you know, it's just sort of, some of these are really sort of interesting. Um, and uh, so we started to, uh, I started to put it together and um, I called up three people that I knew <laughs> and they, thinking, I wonder if anybody would want to be in it. And they all said yes. So, uh, you know, we, we, and we did it. Uh, it had Crosser Puzzle from, from Graham Crackers. It had uh, Autumn from Cyrano. It had uh, Pleased With Myself from How Do You Do I Love You. We basically, re and, and a couple of other things that, where uh, um, we used the song, but I wrote new lyrics to it. Uh, Oh, I left out a show that we wrote called Love Match, called Love Match about, <laughs> about Queen Victoria. Yeah. But there was a um, song called I Don't Believe It, which, mm. uh, in which uh, a bunch of people in the court um, are trying to figure out what's really going on between Victoria and Albert, and, and they don't trust anything that they're hearing. And so I wrote a completely different lyric about... Um, being at dinner parties, having somebody brag about how wonderful their relationship is going, and your your brain start going starts yelling out, "I don't believe it." Mm -hmm. uh, how many of us have not been there? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, um, one step was in it. And that was from uh, "How do you do? How do you, I love you." Um, the whole ending of the show was from the river mm -hmm. um, and uh, a new life coming was from uh, the sap of life so we basically recycled i mean it was our <laughs> trunk um but it sort of held together and um i in those days reviews always had sketches they'd come they had songs and sketches or they had 
a compare, a man who or a woman who who told you what was going on. You know, um, the he takes me off my income tax from New Face of Fifty Two. Mm -hmm. um, one of those people, and I didn't want to do that. And so we were learning the songs, and we were learning the songs. We were now like the end of the second week of rehearsals, and I'm thinking. I've never directed a musical. I, 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 I well, I'll, I'll go into that later. But, mm -hmm. but, um, I thought I've got to start staging it. So, we, the the three people stood in front, and I said, you know, sing the opening, and they did. And I said, sing it again, <laughs> and they did. And I said, sing it again. I didn't know it was like this build up to. The song starting here, starting now, another song that Streisand had recorded. And um, finally, Michael Tucci, who was the guy in the show at that time, just to help out, went to one of the girls and started singing to her. And I thought, why didn't he go to the other one? And I thought, I've got a triangle, I've got a plot. So I strung together seven songs to tell a little story. Um, and, um, so we could just move from song to song and, and you kind of followed what was going on in the course of it. Um, I sort of invented a musical review form, mm -hmm. which is a, a review held together by its internal life, uh, without connectives. Um, it's been, you know, done since by other people, but they never really cut, they never really steal the right things. But the next year, I did this. Uh, um, Lynn, Lynn asked me to fill a slot that the, she had open, and she said, "You, you, and Mary Horowitz were talking about Fats Waller and all those wonderful songs. We tried to make a book musical out of Fats Waller's life, but he died young, and he didn't have a second act. Mm -hmm. So." Um, we sort of gave up on it, but I had lots of thoughts about Waller and the music and the performers in the '30s, and um, so we did this show to fill up the space, fill up the slot, and uh, uh, we had the, the songs. But what I did was I, I shoehorned into the show all of the thoughts that I had for making it a book musical, mm -hmm. so that you got the information about Waller's life from extra verses that we wrote for um, um, uh, the uh, <laughs> Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. And um, wrote, I wrote a lyric to um, Handful of Keys, uh, which is this piano solo uh, in order to tell people what it was, what it must have been like to be able to play stride piano, because people need to know, they needed to know what stride piano was. Um, it was organized half biographically, then about the things that he, the places that he that he performed in, like dance halls and uh, radio spots and and uh, rent parties mm -hmm. and, and the places and the and the the um, um, battles that, that, that went on. I mean, what was extraordinary about the period is that nobody wanted a black performer. 
the only way you could be heard, the only way you could make any impact was simply to be so good they couldn't ignore you. Mm -hmm. and, um, and everyone knew it. I mean, that was the, the, that was the, the essence of it. Um, and, um, and then uh, we went on to, um, um, and then the second act of the show sort of opens up its aperture to include the, the greater world and what was going on. Um, because the Amos Haven, while it's while it's really one entertainment number after another, is really about how hard it was for a, an African American to performer to to um, to function in this world. The clubs, you know, like the Cotton Club was um, for a white audience, and um, was owned by the mafia. You know, um, it was. Fats Waller, could, once he started recording, was a big recording star, but uh, he could headline at the Waldorf Astoria, but he couldn't walk through the lobby. It was that kind of world. Um, and uh, But so much energy and so much fire and so much humor. Um, so we just, we, we went in with, a, with, we went into rehearsal with a stack of sheet music and what turned out to be five really good ideas. <laughs> I didn't know they were good ideas, but they were really good ideas. And um, um, I had expected that, like, starting here, starting now, I'd have three people. So, but I'd built it around a, a woman named Elena Reed, who was a wonderful performer, who had done her act at the Manhattan Theater Club. But she didn't want to do this show. So... By then we were committed to doing it, so we had to have auditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't have anybody in the cast at all. Um, and somewhere in the middle of the first day, Armelia McQueen came in. Armelia McQueen, who looks like a, a gigantic, glorious Cupid doll. I mean, she's from some other planet, this gigantic, beautiful head, this fantastic smile. She sang, she had to sing two songs. I, a period song and then something else. Mm -hmm. She has a soprano, a gorgeous soprano, and then she can sing belty blues songs. And I thought, oh, well, okay, this is it. And um, half an hour later, Nell Carter came in. <laughs> and Nell Carter sang <laughs> New York, New York, which, you know, knocked down the wall of the room. And then we had asked her to write some to sing something from the '30s, thinking that she would pick a sort of a Harlem kind of '30s song or an American jazz song. She she decided, and it was right. It was from the '30s, to sing Noel Coward's "If Love Were All." Mm. I've never heard it sung more touchingly ever. So, well, I had to have her. But I could not have Armelia. I had to choose one or the other. I had to choose one or the other. Two weeks went by. I was really, really trying to figure out. And then I suddenly thought, no, hire both of them and build the second act to an 11 o'clock number in which they come out and sing high notes. Doesn't Done. matter <laughs> what you've had. It doesn't matter what the show has been up until that moment. You will go out happy. Mm -hmm. So that was great. And then... They're both sort of hefty ladies. And so someone else who had auditioned was Irene Cara, 
who is skinny. I thought, okay, two heavy set ladies can gang up on the skinny girl, the skinny pretty girl, who's also a little younger, and then cast only two men so that if any girl wants a man, she's going to have to break up a couple. So I had multiple plots going on. And in fact, the whole thing, you know, it plays on that. And then one other thing happened that, that nailed the show, just nailed it. And that was um, there were in the 40s a series of um, things that were very much like modern music videos. There were films of, of people singing the songs um, that were attached to jukeboxes. <coughs> and for an actual quarter, you could not only hear the song, but you could see this movie. And there was this weird collector uh, who had some of them, and Murray Horowitz knew this guy, so we went down to his overstuffed apartment, and, uh, and he showed it. You can see it. on It's now on YouTube, so it's, it's not a surprise, but you can see. So he started playing Ain't Misbehaving. The Waller had recorded Ain't Misbehaving. And while I was recording and the videos, he's sitting there and there's this pretty girl at the end of the piano and he's singing, Ain't Misbehaving, I'm saving my love for you. And she's smiling at him and he's smiling at her. Except behind him are these three other girls. And they're like smiling along. And every now and then one of them would come up and sort of touch Waller on the shoulder. And the other girl would sort of bat, bat the, that girl away. That, and thinking, what is going on here? Who are those girls? What are they doing here? And it, then it occurred to me, oh my God, Ain't Misbehaving is a lie. It's sung by somebody who's misbehaving like crazy to somebody who knows he's been misbehaving like crazy. He knows she knows. And he also knows there's nothing she can do about it because she wouldn't be interested in him if he was so boring as to be faithful. <laughs> so I mean that that's like high comedy. And it and I thought and then you suddenly think about all the jokes that are in the that Waller's they're all send up jokes. They're all sending up polite society, white society, people who take things too seriously, um, people who don't get the joke. Um and um, that comedy was a weapon that you could use in an unfair world because you win. They, they can't get back at you because you were only joking. And, um, and suddenly it, that, the idea of the, the comedy that was in Waller's suddenly took on a completely different color. And we had this idea that, um, you know, nobody told the truth to anybody. Because, um, and it, it raised the whole issue of, of racism, and, but not racism as much as, 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 as prejudice. Um, and there are many other kinds of prejudices. There are prejudices against people who are overweight or people who are too tall or too small, people who have some kind of, you know, they're pretty or they're, you know, they're, they're just tons and tons of prejudices. And um, 
and you have to you have to maneuver a world. If you're one of those people who doesn't get the pretty girl, if you're a guy who doesn't get the pretty girl, who gets the one whose feet are too, feet's too big, you know, it becomes um, it becomes something something else. So that that was we started just pumping that joke into the show and. While it is an entertainment piece, it is also, and I, think, I know everybody gets it, about something else. Mm-hmm. And um, it's about the dignity of these wonderful, extraordinary artists. It's about the people who fought the fights that are making it easy for young rappers to go in and, you know, sell a million copies of something when they're 17. Um, that it it just it 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 became extraordinarily uh, profound. All of this was found in the four weeks of, of putting in the of putting the show in. We didn't have. I had seen the movie. I knew that joke was going to work. Uh, I had loved Fats Waller's piano playing. I thought. I mean, everybody knows that he makes jokes while he's singing. But if you listen to his piano playing, there's so much humor in the piano playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's teasing you. He's doing all these wonderful things. So I thought, five people, fingers of a hand, wonderful. You know, uh, we can, we could make the sh- if the show could work on the audience in exactly the way that his musical jokes worked, uh, we would have theater. Um, and so, while it is one song after another with no dialogue with the exception of one line in the second act. Um, it's got all the substance of a book musical. Mm-hmm. I call it the non-book book musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it, 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 it's an act of faith. It's, it trusts that the audience is listening and, and that they're putting the pieces together, that they're, they're bringing, themselves, bringing something themselves. It, it did invent a show, a, a kind of show. It, it, lots of people have done sort of, um, uh, you know, jukebox musicals, but they don't get under the skin of the of the material, really. And very often they're not dealing with material whose skin you can get under. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some of the songs are just wonderful songs or not so wonderful songs. Um, but Waller, Waller's work included his own, included his life. Um, and, uh, so we invented something. You did. And I became the king of reviews. <laughs> so it's, it's 1978 and it's the long anchor. Um, yeah. what do you remember? I know you talked about how it happened very fast, but, um, what do you remember about the theater itself at the time or about, do you remember what, what else was playing? Um, were there restaurants on the block you would go to? Was the theater itself, were there places in the, the long anchor that have a special memory for you? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, what did I know? I, I, I was able to be picky. I liked that theater because the stage was low. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had to build a deck, and uh, we took out two rows of seats to 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 make the audience have contact with the with the. Um, I mean, have the cast make have make contact with the audience. Um, 
that was the only thing that 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 interested me. I didn't think about the negatives, the second balcony, the bad location. You know, I didn't even, uh, I didn't think about it. And I think the Schuberts were kind of happy that anybody wanted to go into the, into the Long Acre. One thing I thought was pretty interesting was, you know, in 1982, the Schuberts offered the Long Acre to the city of New York for their small claims court they were trying to find a location for in Midtown. So even after they saw with Ain't Misbehaven that it could have a hit like that, um, it still was, you know, the Long Acre. It had this Well, um, you know, as, as we have to read Razzle Dazzle. Yes. <laughs> I think they do they, talk about that. Oh, he does. Yeah. I mean, because, because uh, the theater business was not doing well at all no. and and a, a they didn't even the city didn't take the long acre they ended up setting up on 54th right, so it right. was that dire the long acre just some background for people who want to hear some fun facts um one thing i thought was interesting it originally seated 1400 patrons and today seats about 1100 which you know there's a lot of uh belly aching about you know the size of theater seats and all this but we've actually you know made theaters more comfortable of course which people sometimes forget um, the Long Acre, the longest running straight play is Children of a Lesser God, which um, a wonderful play. And I love that, you know, over the years, people have found, uh, you know, these this niche at the Long Acre. A lot of those theaters were built as playhouses, but the Long Acre was actually built for musical comedies that were um, meant to be more intimate and smaller. Uh, it did house many of those in its early years, fell into disuse during the Depression, but was revived by the Group Theater, which, of course, has an extraordinary history at the Long Acre. The original Waiting for Lefty and Paradise Lost played the Long Acre, which anytime I've interviewed um, you know, folks like yourself who've played there, usually the thing that if they're interested in the history of it, they go to is that, oh, you know, the, all the Clifford Odets and all the group theater years, um, which were very, you know, prized and interesting. But there's also some other great history at the Long Acre. Uh, in 1939, Mornings at Seven opened and quickly closed there. Um, and the play, which of course is about elderly people in a small town, was not understood at the time, but when it was revived in the 80s became a hit and is now, you know, understood as a classic. Um, also misunderstood at the time, and I'm fascinated by this at the Long Acre, was a play called Three's a Family by Henry and Phoebe Efron uh, really? about babies and expectant mothers, which got bad reviews, but audiences loved it. It ran 500 performances during World War II. Um, the Long Acre, you know, a lot of the theaters obviously have years where they were television and radio studios. Um, the Long Acre only played that game from 1944 to 53. Other than that, it's been a legitimate theater since 1912. Um, only 32 musicals have ever played there, uh, including, really? of course, Ain't Misbehavin'. Really? Um, other than Ain't Misbehavin', I think the biggest hit musical, um, you know, of, of the past eras was the Me Nobody Knows, um, which, you know, I feel like people don't really remember it as much as they should today. It really did make a mark off-Broadway and on-Broadway at the time about inner-city youth, um, which transferred from the Orpheum to the old Helen Hayes to the And had a bunch of hit songs from it. Yeah. It really, it, very wonderful score by Gary William Friedman. It yeah. does. And it's also, you know, it's so honest about inner-city youth. It has a lot to mm -hmm. recommend it. Um, so the interesting thing about The Long Acre, and I'm so glad that you could join me to chat about it, is um, in the Untold Stories of Broadway, uh, I haven't actually done The Long Acre yet. So the interview that you and I did at the now-closed Stargate Diner on 89th and 3rd, <laughs> um, where we talked so much about this and so many of the stories you're telling me now on uh, May 17th, 2013, uh, that hasn't been published yet. So it's just exciting to get to go into The Long Acre as a little preview for a chapter that will someday be. Um, but that's said I have collected stories from yourself and well, others about it in the to me the the thing about it was 
I, it was my first Broadway show. Uh-huh. I, and the big, the, <laughs> the big things that it meant to me were so kind of idiosyncratic and bizarre. The main thing was I could go up to a stage door and open it and go in. <laughs> and I didn't have to ask. Yeah. That was like the fact that I could go into a stage door and didn't have to ask permission was <laughs> so much bigger than that stupid thought sounds, but it really meant a lot. And the other was the show was this kind of magical burst of energy. And then and then it would be over, and then you know slowly everybody would leave. And I just would stay around. And um, often with Bill Elliott, the music, you know, the guy who did these wonderful musical arrangements. But even just by myself, I'd just sit on the stage with the work light. Is there anything more magical than the dull, empty, ghost of a place <laughs> that, a, that is going to be. Uh, it occurred to me that, you know, the majority of the day of a theater is that. Yeah. And then sort of people come in, they sort of clean and they go away. And then some, and some people start arriving and they start sort of preparing. And then some other people start coming and, and they get, get, and they're sort of getting ready and everything. And then at a certain moment, um, when the the house lights come up and the stage lights go off and the people come into the theater and suddenly it's a glowing little place and then this thing happens <laughs> on on the stage this magical brilliant thing of lights and color and music and everything and it sweeps in front of you like a bunch of silks and then it's gone and then it disappears and the theater returns to its emptiness. Um, I just found that so magical. I, I could stay there anytime. It had a one little side light to it because once Jimmy Carter came to see the show. Oh my gosh, I read about that. President Jimmy Carter with, with Rosalind and other family members and a whole bunch of you know, people. And, and of course, when the president comes to your show, <laughs> you... Um, you it's a big deal. There are Secret Service people all over the place and everything. As a matter of fact, I was late getting to the theater and I couldn't get through the crowd. I had to <laughs> sort of find some policeman and convince him that I had some reason to be inside the theater. Um, but that happened and we, he came backstage and we all lined up and we all said hello and it was all really wonderful and, and, and they... They departed, and uh, everybody else departed. And is uh, my usual way. I kept staying there, and pretty soon the house was empty, and I was just sitting there in the work lights. And I heard from the top of the second balcony, "Has everybody gone?" I said, "Yeah, everybody's gone. Who are you?" He said, "Well, I'm the Secret Service. Nobody told me to leave." <laughs> I was up on the roof. They placed me up on the roof, but nobody, nobody told me it was over. Wow. I read something where Nell Carter and Jimmy Carter were joking about they must be related and yes. they have the same last name. And, of course it yeah. was. 
Thanks for tuning in for part two of this week's The Untold Stories of Broadway podcast featuring our guest Richard Malpe Jr. Stay tuned for more fun stories in episode three. Thank you to our producer, Dory Berenstein, and my publishers of The Untold Stories of Broadway, Brisa Trincaro and Roberta Pereira, Zach Zadek for that theme music. And thank you to all of you for listening to the podcast. You can buy The Untold Stories in book version on Amazon.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.